Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is incredibly excited again and I'm going to pass you over to her. Yeah, today we're going to do some World War One, but specifically we're going to talk about India and World War One um, with George Morton Jack. George has written a fantastic book called The Indian Empire at War, um, filling a gap in literature that basically sort of excludes them. Um, we hear lots from Australia, lots from New Zealand, um, and not so much from the Indians. Um, and one and a half million of them fought with the British in the Great War in Europe, Africa, Asia, everywhere. So George, hey... Yeah, hi guys. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. And congratulations, you've just become a father in the midst of all this chaos. <laughs> that is right. I've, I've got a new baby girl, so uh, something else to study. <laughs> <laughs> and not much writing going on? Uh, no, no. <laughs> not at the moment. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's, uh, let's have some adult time. First of all, how does Britain view India before the Great War? Well, I think this is something where we have to look first at how Britain saw itself. And it's only when we see how British people saw themselves 100 years ago that you, can, that you can start to really get how they saw India and the Indian people, I think. And the common denominator of all this was that the British were living in an imperial world. And Britain saw itself very proudly at the time as a world leader of what was seen as, as human progress in their eyes with democracy, industrialization, and the stock market and the benefits of all these things that the British thought they were gradually spreading around the world. And in that world, in that imperial world, India was very uh, prominent on the map and in British imagination. And so when we see all that as what the British saw as part of an upwards trajectory of British national destiny, India, within that imperial framework, becomes seen as very closely connected to British national life. And by extension there, you get the British feeling great pride in their empire and through that great pride in the Indian Empire, in the Indian army as well. And I think this was reflected up to 1914 and the years short, shortly uh, before then and how across Britain we have cigarette card pictures, newspapers, illustrated magazines and other things that glorify the Indian army in very uh, clear Im images. And at the same time, when the Indian army visited Britain in the late, uh, 1800s and the early 1900s you've got crowds coming out to cheer them and they're very popular when they come for Queen Victoria's Jubilee in 1897 or the coronations of Edward VII or uh, George V and so that's partly what the British saw through their own eyes uh, of India at the time but it's 
vital today to recognise how that kind of imperialist thinking was really a convenient facade. And the British thought like that at the same time as seeing themselves as, as a white master race who were entitled to dominate other parts of the world and plunder India through the colonial state that they, they imposed there, which is founded, of course, on white power, racist hierarchies and violence. So I think in 1914, if we look at how Britain viewed India, it's got to be uh, in that colonial sense and Britain seeing India in a self-serving way as a possession to be exploited for gain in the world. And one example of this, which is really helpful in understanding how the British saw India as something to exploit and use, is how some senior British soldiers of the general staff saw India as a resource to use for global security. And shortly before 1914, you've got British general staff officers looking around the British Empire thinking that, we're going, we're thinking that they were likely to have a war with Germany. And so they needed to gather together imperial forces from around the world to counter that German threat. And in 1911, in 1911 in particular, the British draw up plans for Indian divisions to come and fight in France with a British expeditionary force uh, if war breaks out with Germany. And that's a, a really good example of how Britain sees India as something to use uh, for British ends. When we use the word loyalty for 1914 in India, it's a very tricky idea that we need to be careful with, of course. And we need to look behind uh, that loyalty and what it can mean in different ways. And in particular for the British as a colonial government, at the time they've, they've got relationships with various elite Indian groups, like the Indian National Con Congress, who outwardly in 1914 uh, support the war effort, making public declarations. But they're only really doing that because they wanted to change their relationship with the British rather than simply being loyal. And they were in the mindset of showing support for the British war effort in the hope of getting improved political rights towards uh, self-government. And Gandhi at the time uh, takes this approach in part. I mean, his ideas are very much uh, in flux in the early 1900s, but in 1914, after the war's broken out, he raises Indian medical volunteers in England and Scotland. And later in the war, he helps recruit troops in India. And there's one point where he tells the British in India, that I will rain men on you because he's so uh, committed to raising troops for the British in return for political rights that he'll think thinks India can get as a reward for war service. And so going back to 1914, if we look at loyalty, I think it's important to try and understand how much it, it's, it's a question of what Indians are seeking to achieve through showing what the British can say uh, looks like loyalty. Um, what do you find that the understanding was of the average Indian soldier when it comes to what they were fighting for? Um, I found one uh, bit of testimony, and it was a visit by the king to Brighton when it was being used for Indian troops. And uh, one man was asked, do you know why you are fighting? And it was very much along the lines of Baldrick's um, explanation <laughs> of um, yeah. why we were at war in Blackadder, I mean, the guy is uh, talking about the Emperor of Australia um, being in a fight with the Empire, uh, with another um, chief, and that they decided, well, now I will fight you, and that's why they were there. Was this across the board, or did people have a good understanding? Well, I think what that soldier said in Brighton reflects uh, Indian troops' understanding of how this was a war of kings and emperors at the head of the, the states involved often. But... I think firstly, we, we need to look at what 
the average India, Indian soldier might be. And there were so many different sorts of men from different communities uh, in the Indian army because it recruited from in South Asia alone from what are now uh, seven different countries. And to, to, to see people from so many different places uh, in that sense and, and pick an average is quite, is quite difficult. And I think the broadest characteristic that the Indian soldiers shared, if we're looking at what they might have thought on average they were fighting for, it's, it was very important to them that they joined up often for soldiering as, as their profession or just for employment with a reliable wage in wartime to help their families. And so if we're looking at what they were fighting for, often it, it was they were fighting for something that, that was their job uh, to help their families. And a good example of, of this is that recruits who came from Nepal had a, had a word uh, at home meaning uh, migrant worker to describe who they were as soldiers going to India for the British uh, overseas. And if we're looking for broad characteristics that were shared, we can find, say, that economic factor there of uh, finding a job. But it's important to see how different recruits, depending on when they joined the army or where they were from, might have had different views of what they were fighting for. And I think this is where it gets really interesting because you get different sorts of behavior from different types of recruits. So in 1914 in the Indian Army, you've got some Indian recruits who are professional soldiers who have been serving uh, since as far back as the 1890s. And these are, these are men who perhaps have already been on active service abroad, say in China, in the early 1900s for the British. And so when war breaks out in 1914, there's evidence of some of them saying, oh, this looks like another uh, small war for the British overseas, with no real sense of it being a great war or a world war. And as the war goes on, there's really interesting behaviour from different types of Indian troops as they show how they can take a different view of what they're fighting for, uh, depending on which community they're from. And so in, in 1915, uh, we've got some Sikh troops in India who are part of a, a Sikh revolutionary movement uh, in Punjab. And the, they, they have a very clear vision amongst themselves that they're in the service of a colonial regime that they need to overthrow. And some of them are betrayed and that the British capture them and, uh, and they get hanged. And this is something I talk about uh, in my book uh, with, with their story. Um, and the book also looks at uh, troops, Muslim troops from uh, the northern edge of, of India and how some of those came from Afghan borderlands that were outside uh, British territory. And so they're actually, they were independent politically. And so they look on fighting for the British as, as a service for a foreign regime that if they desert, they, they can take or leave it going back to their home outside British jurisdiction. And it's a question for them of whether military service is something which is in their interests and is worth it given the demands. And so they take different approaches to this throughout the war. And some of them serve consistently and fight hard for the British, but there are others who question what it's like working for the British. And again, there are some tragic stories here, which I've got in the book, but there are some in 1915 who refused to board their ship for overseas service. And the evidence, uh, as far as I can tell, shows that they did it because they thought it wasn't worth fighting abroad for the British when they got unequal pay compared to British troops in inferior terms, terms of service. And as it, punished for the punishment for this, and it was a peaceful protest, uh, some of them were hanged by the British again. And from their community, uh, nearly 2,000 men had desert, deserted by 1917. Again, thinking, what am I fighting for? I'm fighting for a regime that's going to treat me like a a racial inferior 
and that's not worth it. So up to, up to 2,000 of them uh, desert. And one of the stories I have in my book, uh, based on new evidence, is that there was a Victoria Cross winner in France called Mir Dast, who came from this community, and he deserted, the evidence suggests, in 1917, because he, he gets treated by the British in a way uh, which he sees as very disrespectful. And he, 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 as far as the evidence shows, thought to himself, I'm not going to take this anymore. And so he deserts and goes home. And that's not a story that you get in normal British narratives, because it's not how uh, the British wanted to present things. And looking more broadly at the ward's wider ideals of what the Indian recruits, recruits think they were fighting for, it, what was it? Were they all like that guy in Brighton who thought uh, this is a war of kings and somebody who doesn't, who doesn't understand the bigger political picture? You get some Indian troops who are fighting in France uh, for up to four years, from 1914 to 1918. And by 1917, some of them had started marrying French women and are having children and are starting new families in France uh, behind the lines. And some of them get ideas from the French, very clear ideas about how they're fighting a German army that's invaded a country. And they see devastation the German army's caused, in, in particular during a German strategic retreat in 19. 17. It was actually used as an historical event in the recent movie 1917. And, and those Indian troops at the time talk among themselves very much uh, of having to free France uh, from a foreign tyrant. And it's, it's there that Indian troops towards the end of the war are getting much closer to an understanding of the Allied ideal of what the war is about, being for democracy and, and freedom uh, from German tyranny. And on the biggest level, towards the end of the war, of course, for President Wilson, we've got politicians talking about uh, how the war is, is uh, for self-determination and, and to preserve democracy for the world. But it's difficult to draw a, a connection between that kind of political rhetoric and at times propaganda and the Indian troops and what they, they thought. But as we see with those examples in France, I think as the war goes on, you do get Indian troops with a greater understanding of what the Allies at the highest level think the war is about. And amongst the Indian troops, what this translates to, into is more of an awareness of their own political rights that they realise they lack at home even more than they did before. And a greater uh, sense of urgency inside them, a greater intensity uh, and insistence that they should be treated as equals alongside the British, French and Germans. So it, it's a shifting picture throughout the war of how the, how the, in, the Indians saw what they were fighting for. And... It starts in 1914 in one place, and I think it's very different by 1918. Can you tell us about the Indian Army and explain for our listeners the concept of having white officers, uh, etc.? Well, the Indian Army overall in the First World War had uh, approximately one and a half million uh, Indian troops. And they were recruited by the colonial state. And as, as I was saying, they, they come from all sorts of different uh, communities and broadly speaking the majority are, are Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs and they're villages uh, from small farming families uh, and some come from urban areas but the majority uh, have come from rural communities and the system they join is a uh, is a colonial military system so overall in the war there are nearly 10,000 white British officers and in each regiment and above that in the Indian army it's always the white officers who are in charge with the Indians as uh, subordinates. And most of these white officers come uh, from the British Isles. Um, some of them are from Ireland in, in particular and Scotland, but also England and Wales. But some of them come from Australia and Canada 
and even some uh, from Jamaica and the Caribbean. And they form this leadership group above the Indians. And, th and there's no way that the Indians can get into that group uh, on level of equality during the war, even though some Indian officers towards the end of the war are given the same type of commission, the King's Commission, that the British officers have, but they're not treated as, as true equals. It's something which is uh, very much developing and, and the white officers are always in charge. Talk to us about when, at the end of 1914, the Indians are flung into the fray on the Western Front. Well, in, in 1914, the uh, war plans for India to join the war in Europe uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, they're activated uh, within 48 hours of Britain declaring war on the 4th of August. And it's agreed uh, in the Cabinet Room in London within a day after the war breaks out that the Indians should come and fight in Europe. And normally, if you didn't have any plans for that at the time, it would take quite some time to shift uh, Indian divisions from uh, India all the way to France. But the British have plans in place and the Indians are moved quite quickly. And they're, they're, all, they're requested uh, by London to leave India in, in August, which they do. And they arrive in France in September. And then they join uh, the, the British front in the autumn of 1914 at the end of October. And what's extraordinary, and if you pick most history books off the shelf about the First World War, going back for 100 years, it's, it's only a minority that really mentioned this. Uh, extraordinarily, in 1914, in the last week of October, the Indians provided around one third of the entire British expeditionary force uh, on the Western Front. And sometimes the, the, uh, the Battle of the Marne is emphasized as the key battle that stopped a German victory in 1914. But the first Battle of Ypres, which was a few weeks after that in October and November, was also a critical battle that could have led to a German victory in the West if they'd broken through the British lines. And the Indians arrived right at a critical juncture of the battle in the last week of October, and they took over uh, just over 30% of the British line uh, with a third of, of the British expeditionary force, forces uh, troops. And on balance, it's very hard to see how the British could have survived that battle without the Indians arriving at that time, and therefore how the Allied line could have held if the Indians hadn't been there. And of course, the Indians were there fighting alongside British, French and Belgian troops at the same time. So there is a bigger picture. Every part of the line was vital. But, but in that sense, the Indian part was also vital too. And I think that's something which should be worked more into histories of the Western Front. Then they're sent in again in the spring of 1915 at Neuve Chapelle. How did they do? Well, this was the first British offensive of the First World War in the West. And the big question, which the British didn't really have many answers to at the time, was how do you control large battle formations in entrenched warfare to break through German lines? And Neuve Chapelle is the British first effort. And the Indians form half the attacking force. And on the first day of the battle, which was uh, in March 1915, they capture the village of Neuve Chapelle and get further than the British troops alongside them of a, of a British Army Corps. And then over the next two days, they don't make further progress because of the problems at the time of coordinating the artillery to help the infantry advance. But it's very significant that the first British offensive has the Indians taking a primary role. And later in 1915, what that battle shows is how the British started developing towards the Battle of the Somme and beyond into the army that then won the war uh, alongside the Allies in 1918. 
But Neuf Chapelle was the very start. So it's very significant that the Indians were there and it was the Indians and it was Indian losses that at the very start of the war helped the British understand better how uh, to fight successfully against the Germans on the Western Front. Um, I think it's always really important to remember that Indians were basically on every front. So tell us about the Indian contribution at Gallipoli. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's right in that the, the Indians served on, on pretty much every front. And often you have Indian troops who were serving on one front, front and then moved to another and even moved to another. And there was one Indian regiment that was one of the first Indian regiments to get to Gallipoli in, in mid-1915, which was the 89th Punjabis. And they went on to serve on seven different fronts uh, during the war, which I think was more than any other uh, battalion of any army in the world. And Gallipoli overall had 16,000 uh, Indian troops serving there. And they were there from the first day uh, in April 1915, landing alongside the Australians and New Zealanders when Indian artillery uh, was firing in support of those troops. And Indians were, were amongst the last to leave in early 1916. So they were on Gallipoli pretty much the entire time of the Gallipoli campaign for the British. And they had a huge range of experiences. And uh, these, some of these stories uh, are in my book. But in particular, we've got some Indian soldiers, who, or one in particular, who's in uh, Turkish captivity. And he sprints away as he jumped off a cliff and swims back to the Allied beaches. We've got other tr- Indian troops bound for Gallipoli on boats which were attacked by German U-boats. And there's one Indian party in lifeboats that uh, becomes castaways after their boat is sunk by the Germans. And they uh, land on a Greek island where Greek farmers uh, rescue them. And they spend time on, on that island being looked after uh, by the farmers living in a, a cow shed, cow shed uh, drink, drinking uh, red wine and getting to know the, the farmer's food. And so we can look at the Gallipoli experience as being among the trenches. And of course, that was a huge part of it. But there are all these range of experiences around it for the individual or groups of people on ships, for example, that I think need to become part of how we see Gallipoli so that it, it doesn't just become an Australian experience with the British there too, with New Zealanders. But we can see how there also might be lots of Turkish stories, but also Indian stories all, all around the peninsula. And in particular at Gallipoli, uh, the Indians uh, capture the highest point of land uh, in early August during one of the British offensives which overlooks the Dardanelles, the seaway behind, leading uh, to Istanbul. And it's the Indians who are there. And if that ridge is held, that's the key to the peninsula. And they can see Asia beyond. But then they're shelled by New Zealand artillery by mistake, and they have to fall back. And so also you have these agonising stories of, of Indians fighting on Gallipoli, who aren't just down by the beaches or deep in the trenches. They get up to the heights. They can see the sea. They can see Turkey beyond. And then they're, they're forced back by their by mistake. And unfortunate, and other unfortunate units, Salonika too. Well, yeah, in in Salonika, you've got Indian troops serving there from 1915 up until the end of the war. And to start with, it's it's not so much the frontline combat units from India who are serving there against the Bulgarians. It's more Indian transport units. And again, they have a, a great range of experiences there from seeing there's, 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 a, there's a huge fire in, in, uh, in Salonika which rips through the Greek town and they're, they're, they're there to, to, to witness that and also that they're going from the, from the sea up until the front line repetitively uh, transporting things for the British troops there and again some Indian troops there are taken uh, prisoner and fall into Bulgarian captivity and towards the end of the war it's more combat units that are sent 
uh, to Salonika. So it's not just the uh, transport units there, you also have fighting units. Uh, they even served in Africa, didn't they? Yeah, so when we were saying earlier about the, the different places that the Indians serve in, they actually served in what are now 50 different countries around the world. And at my count, that's more than any other army in the First World War. And the, this amazing range of places that they fight in for the British uh, is shown in Africa as much as anywhere else. And so you have Indian troops in Africa fighting in North Africa, in, in, the, uh, in Eastern Egypt by the Suez Canal, where they're fighting the Turks. They're also fighting uh, Turkish-backed forces in, in the Western Desert towards Libya and Western Egypt. There are also Indian troops serving in Somalia. They also serve in Cameroon. And they also serve in particular in East Africa, in what's now Kenya, uh, Tanzania, and Mozambique. And again, if we're looking at the First World War, it's, it's, it's often easier, and people have often done this for Indian troops, is that you can generalize looking at the Western Front in particular. And in fact, on the Western Front, the Indian infantry, who've, who've probably had more attention than other Indian forces uh, in, in the history books, they, they accounted for just 3% of the overall Indian servicemen in the war. And it's Africa where you have a large number of other Indian troops who haven't had uh, nearly as much attention, but there they are on the continent of Africa, serving uh, in several corners of it. And it's only really when you start to look properly at places like Africa in the First World War that you start to understand what was happening in Europe, what was happening in Asia, because you, you can start to draw the parallels and to get the proper context you need, I think, to really understand the First World War. And for the Indian troops, the Western Front was the theatre that had the best logistics uh, in the First World War. So the Indian troops were there, for example, had reliable post, uh, meaning that they could, they could send and receive letters uh, from their families almost every week. But in, in East Africa, they didn't have the same logistical services because the armies moved much greater distances and the train was terrain was much more difficult. And so there, there's no uh, reliable post service for the Indian troops in East Africa. And there, they're effectively cut off uh, from their families. And the bush warfare they fight against the Germans is also very, very tough. And it makes us understand how the First World War had the grimmest of experiences or you know, involved these for troops, not just on the Western Front, but had incredibly tough conditions uh, elsewhere too. And the... Indian troops in East Africa actually suffered the most as, pris as prisoners of war there in that this is another way where if we look at one area of the world in the First World War, it helps us understand others in that there are Indian prisoners of war. As, as I mentioned, there are a small number taken prisoner by the uh, Bulgarians at Salonika, but also you've got Indian prisoners of war being held in Germany and Romania and elsewhere. But it's in East Africa in German captivity that you have the highest uh, death rate amongst the Indian prisoners. And it's, it runs at about 65% of the Indian prisoners of war taken by the Germans there uh, in East Africa die. And, and that, that, that's an absolutely tragic statistic, which, again, then gives a slightly different context if we're looking at what's going on elsewhere for the Indian troops. And it shows that one of the worst fates you could have as an Indian soldier in the First World War uh, is to be taken prisoner by the Germans uh, in East Africa. A really significant theatre for Indian troops is Mesopotamia, isn't it? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, yeah, yeah, it was a very significant front because it was actually the front where the majority of, compared to the other theatres, the majority of the Indian troops served. It was, it was the front where you, you had the greatest number. And they invaded in late 1914 with the British at Basra. Then they attacked northwards, going up uh, to Kut, where the Indian 6th Division is besieged and uh, surrenders in, in 1916. And then afterwards, the British forces are developed and are improved, that they become more powerful. And again, with Indians as the majority, they then attack towards Baghdad, which they capture in 1917. And after that, they move north in 1918, capturing uh, oil fields in northern Iraq for the British. And I think it's really important to understand the, the Mesopotamia or Iraq theatre by seeing how it fits in and by comparison with other theatres in the First World War. And we've got Indian troops, say in Brighton, who we were talking about earlier, who were receiving for the times of the day, quite a high standard of medical care. And it's important to recognise that a big part of the reason why the British were giving them that care was so it could be shown in propaganda to show how the British cared for the Indians as colonial subjects. And that links to Iraq because in 1915 and 1916, there are huge logistical problems in Iraq, which British troops often suffer in very similar ways uh, to Indian troops, meaning that we don't have, or the British didn't have uh, medical, medical services uh, nearly as good as on the Western Front and British and Indian troops uh, suffered from that. But at the same time, in Iraq in 1915 and 1916, the British weren't taking the care that they gave the Indians uh, in Brighton. And if you appreciate how much the care given in Brighton was for propaganda purposes, you can then see how the Indians were treated as colonial subjects in Iraq, where the British didn't have the same motivation to make good propaganda and so you didn't get the same medical services being provide, provided. And I think that really shows up the predicament Indian soldiers could be in as colonial subjects, that how they're treated is wrapped up in all these considerations of the colonial state and how it treats its colonial subjects. And for all that the British troops suffered often in, in, in similar ways to the Indian troops in Iraq, you've still got some of the worst suffering the Indian troops have in the whole war in Iraq. And I think that's directly linked to their status as colonial subjects who the British just didn't take the care for at the outset to think, what should we provide these troops with in a way that would have been unimaginable, say, for troops on the Western Front. 
Mm, I, I agree with that about the Western Front, but I, I still don't agree that it's because they're colonial. I just think it's an utter logistical failure. I also think as well, when you talk about propaganda purposes, I'm not denying that element might be there, but I, don't, I do think it shortchanges the town of Brighton as well and how genuine their response was in offering um the pavilion um and then and i mean they offered other sites as well and they weren't as nice as the pavilion um and one of them mm. was a former workhouse and the sanitary arrangements weren't great but i they, they mirror problems across the country i i just think it's a bit sinister to try and to well perhaps to lean too far towards saying that it's because there, there's no propaganda opportunity. I just think the advance in Mesopotamia was ill thought out. It's unforgivable that there were no medical arrangements in place. Um, but it's also the worst suffering for some of the British troops as well that have to lie out there and die in the sun and have no graves because there was no chain of evacuation to get them on the river and get them home. I, I, I wrote about one of them and it, it's shocking and horrible. But I, I don't think it was racially motivated personally. But then we research coming from different angles. You you, I go at it from the military, and you come mm. from the other side. So, well, yeah, I, I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't mean in any way that there's a complete explanation in simply saying that the Indian soldier was a colonial subject and, and was treated in certain ways because of that. But I think it, it's an indispensable element of understanding how they were treated. And at the same time, in Brighton, you've got. The local population who still I know because uh, I've been there and spoken to people about it as, mm. as maybe you have still have very warm memories they're of, really proud of what they did yeah, aren't they pride, for of the Indians receiving uh, the Indian troops and how and they it is this wonderfully British assumption as well that like, we've got this really Indian looking building we should give it to the Indians but I, I don't think it was sinister in that I, I think it's, it's emblematic of the time but they are really proud of how they stepped up and volunteered to take all of the the wounded Indians but even if you're talking about before Brighton when they were in the New Forest and yes the conditions were not good but then they were not that that is the the logistical effort of setting up this much medical mm. attention um and the the surrounding arrangement for the white troops weren't good either so I think it's important to strike the right balance yeah of course and I, I'm not saying there wasn't goodwill uh, yeah. of course that, that was there in abundance but at the same time I think you can have people who are treated in certain ways because of their race and there's a difference between uh, the colonial state and the structures that that has and it, it's power dynamics and, and then you've got on the other hand people who say members of the British public and how, how that might mix into the treatment that colonial state provides and so I think there are elements which mix together and they're, and they're not necessarily separated. Yeah, same. And and because I, I haven't looked at the, the pre-war arrangement on the Indian side of the documents, um, I'm looking at it from the military side during the advance. So like I said, we approach it from a different way. and Maybe there's different interpretations to be had from, from different starting points. You know, of course, that's what we always need is different interpretations. Absolutely. I have to ask you as well, what about being taken prisoner by the Turks? Because when we think of the siege of Kut and the amount of prisoners that are put over into Turkish hands, um, it is overwhelmingly the Indians that suffer there, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're, you're completely right. The, the Indians uh, at Kut, so there we're looking at the Mesopotamia campaign uh, in what uh, was known to many people at the time, at the time as now as Iraq and the Indian troops there end up 
at the town of Kut in 1916, where the sixth Indian Sixth Division is captured, with with uh, roughly you know approximately about 10,000 Indian prisoners of war who were taken, and the Turks put them in captivity uh, in Syria and southeast Turkey, uh, mostly in forced labour, and they you're right, live in absolutely terrible conditions where they're forced to build railways in particular and they're not fed properly and that their situation improves slightly towards the end of the war. But again, yeah, tremendous suffering for Indian prisoners of war. And I think it's really important, again, this idea of looking at the First World War on different fronts to try and understand what actually happened between 1914 and 18 in that it's the Western Front as the dominant theatre, of course, but all sorts of other theatres, which also need to be looked at if we, if we really want to understand what, what happened during the war. Moving away from the tactical, the Germans, their ultimate dream really, isn't it, is that the British Muslim subjects, would they could start a, a, get a jihad started, come down on Britain's shoulders. Um, that was, they, and they're constantly intriguing for that um, in the East and in Asia. Did it ever look likely that India would be compelled to get involved in something like that? Well, I think it was something which was definitely targeted at India, given that overall you've got a German scheme which they want to spread around the world, including against the British Empire, to divert Allied resources uh, away from Europe, so to the to the colonies in Africa and Asia to, to defend these. Uh, and the jihad that the Germans engineer uh, with the Turks in 1914, from the German point of view, it's really created by that German Orientalist scholars and the ideas that go behind it from the German point of view. And they look at Muslims and Islam in a particularly Orientalist way very much of the time in seeing, for example, Muslims as, as a word, so quote-unquote fanatical, who mm. are this great mass of people who can suddenly rise up en masse and rebel against the Allies, causing that diversion of uh, resources that the Germans were looking for. But the reality, of course, is much more complicated. And the fact is that for all that the Germans could issue a call, which was widely delivered around uh, the Islamic world for Muslims to rise up against the Allies. The Germans just didn't have the local understanding or relationship or networks, let alone the resources around the Islamic world to start the kind of rebellion they, they were looking for. And so if you're looking for India, for example, for example, as a place where could this have really turned into a situation of, of great rebellion against the British, it was very, very unrealistic. And I don't think it, it really could have happened on a practical level because the Germans just didn't have the relationships, the resources or the presence to start a rebellion uh, in somewhere like India. Mm-hmm. And there were some small groups who they were able to get uh, to rise up and, and attack the British, but it was very much uh, small groups in isolation rather than ever, anything large. And the idea of the German jihad raising in society, Indian society against the British, I don't think was ever going to happen. So what was life like in India during the war? Well, it's really a story about colonial rule because the trajectory of colonial rule, as I was saying earlier, is about how the British develop ways to control and exploit India and use its resources. And that's how they treat India in the First World War, to use India, to harness it, to fight uh, the British war effort. And... So this is, of course, from, from the British point of view. And so that's about the extraction of Indian resources. So life on the home front for, for, uh, for Indians is, is, that, is that story about how do the British extract 
uh, Indian resources and what does that mean for Indians for their day-to-day life. And for some Indians towards the end of the war, that very much means uh, being forced into the army. And it's often said that the Indian army was a volunteer army, which to a large extent it was. But towards 1917, 1918, you start getting local uh, recruitment networks in the Punjab in, in particular, uh, which is sponsored recruitment networks sponsored by the British, where you have people forcing people into the army because there are British rewards for the recruiters. And this lead, leads to blood being spilled on the streets as some men protest against forced uh, recruitment. And so that's just one example of how life on the Indian home front is a life under colonial rule. And this leads to these situations where the British created local networks where people could be forced into the army. And then that leads uh, to fighting by some locals uh, to stop that happening to them. And of course, you've got uh, on the home front in India, the losses of Indian families and about 50,000 Indians, Indian servicemen are killed in the First World War. And so we have scenes uh, often across India of families in mourning or receiving news of sons, husbands, fathers or other family members who have been killed uh, in British service. And this comes across a lot in the oral memory of India and how village songs have been preserved, uh, showing this sense of enormous grief at how they've lost family members uh, serving for the British. And it's important to remember that because that is what the war could often mean for Indian families, as in that was the price of uh, of military service uh, for them. But uh, alongside that, with the uh, Indian recruits, I think it's also important to remember that life on the home front uh, in India also meant the British attacking Indian people with, uh, with military forces, including the Indian army. And we have... Uh, the famous example of the Amritsar massacre in 1919, where the British used military force uh, against the Indian people. But the First World War shows us how much that wasn't an exception, but part of the British rule of force in India. And there are similar events which aren't well known. So you can find examples during the First World War where the British are using force against Indian communities uh, and killing people and attacking civilian targets, including homes uh, in parts of India. And that was part of the, the Indian home front. And some of those communities who were uh, rebelling against the British at the time are, are rebelling against recruitment. And so that, that's partly a consequence of the war, of course. So alongside the politics we were talking earlier of having the, the Indian politicians, uh, like those of the Indian National Con- Congress, who were seeing the war as, as an opportunity to improve their political rights through cooperating, cooperating uh, with the British for the war's duration. We've got all sorts of other things going on in India as well, with family tragedies, with the extraction of resources, but also rebellion. And you have fighting in India, not just abroad. So what was India's role in victory by 1918? Well, by 1918, there's a broad uh, division in the British Empire's forces in that some of them are concentrated, concentrated in Western Europe against the Germans. And then you've got some which by 1918 uh, includes the Indian army in particular, who have been concentrated in the Middle East uh, against the Turks. But still in 1918, you've got Indian troops serving in France and many other theatres. And what that shows is that since 1914, given the critical role that the Indians had to the, at the start on the Western Front, going up to 1918, where the, where the majority of Indian troops are in the Middle East, it shows how to really understand the course of the First World War. 
you've got to factor in the Indian troops in that. And if you're going to account for victory, in particular against the Turks, and a victory against the Turks is generally not uh, remembered as much as against the Germans, you've got to factor in the Indians and see how they affected and shaped uh, the course of the First World War. And in doing that, 1918 is a good point at which to look back on and reflect on the, the range of Indian troops and, and just how many of them there were and about one million uh, combatants, meaning they were the ones who were given guns and forced in the front line. And then 500,000 of them uh, were non-combatants, meaning they, they weren't given guns, but helped with transport, like at Salonika, as we were saying earlier. And at the same time by 1918, there's been this great range of ages of Indian troops who have served. And some, the youngest Indian recruits I found evidence of were 10 years old. And we got the oldest Indian, Indian recruit, who I think was the oldest soldier in the British trenches, uh, who was called Pratap Singh. He was fighting uh, in the front line in the Great War at the age of 74 uh, with his two sons, both of whom were teenagers. Uh, and he served in France and also uh, in the Middle East. And we've got so many, such a large number of Indian troops of such a great range of communities and, and such an age range as well, that it just shows how again, understanding the First World War and the Indian participation is about appreciating how they came from so many different places and how they were so varied, even in age, let alone their backgrounds or religions. Um, I'm interested to know, because uh, I know it wasn't very good for British uh, necessarily, what was life like for veterans in India after the war? Like, How were the wounded, those that were permanently maimed, um, and just those that had served, treated and remembered? Well, there were systems set up uh, by the British colonial regime, which favoured Indian veterans for medical care. And you could look at that and say, what, what good is that care if somebody's already maimed or has gone, has gone blind? Because it was quite basic medical care. But the British did make an effort uh, to care for veterans and to look after the, the communities that soldiers had come from to try and keep them uh, supportive of, uh, of the colonial system, which relied heavily uh, on the Indian army. So there was that aspect which could include ongoing medical care for Indian veterans. But one of, one of the sources I came across uh, for my book, which, which the book is actually the first to use, is veteran interviews where you've got Indian veterans who talk openly about what uh, life after the war meant for them. And we were talking earlier about how you have Indian troops, say, for example, in France, who have a slightly different view of politics and a colonial rule because of their experiences in the war. And in these... Uh, veteran interviews that I use for my book, uh, which I've now uh, passed on to the British Library, where they're on deposit for anyone to go and look at. The Indian troops, as veterans, say in the 1970s in, in these interviews, often talk about themselves as, sla as slaves and saying how the war gave them the sense that they should have been fighting for their own country, for their own country's reasons, and not fighting for the British, who they describe uh, as treating them as slaves during the war given the colonial system. So life for an Indian veteran after the war is this very difficult area of them looking back on the war and thinking about how the British treated them and what that meant. And some of the Indian troops, and we know this through oral, oral memories that have uh, survived down to generations in India and Pakistan uh, with families, some of them certainly look back on their military service uh, with pride. And one family... Uh, I've been in touch with in Pakistan, for example, uh, has a their great grandfather who served in the First World War. He was somebody who 
uh, traveled overall about 23,000 miles serving in different countries. Who was an Indian soldier, uh, was in Flanders with the first Indian troops in 1914. Uh, he was received by the, the king at Buckingham Palace in 1915 when he was awarded the military cross. He went on to serve uh, in East Africa, in Kenya. He also served in Egypt. And he went back to England again after the end of the war. And memories of this really survive uh, in uh, Indian and Pakistani families today in many cases. And so when you're looking at the Indian veterans after the war and what are their experiences, there's this huge range of experiences in different countries which they're telling their families and which become wrapped up in their identity of who they are and what they might feel in themselves if they have pride and, and, and greater self-respect because of how they've served as soldiers or just greater experience of the world which they pass on to their families. And it's important, of course, also to remember how the British commemorated the veterans. And Indian war graves are a good example of how there was a continuing difference in treatment between the British and the Indians, in that some Indian troops' dead bodies uh, were thrown into mass graves uh, under, you know, un under British control and weren't given individual headstones. And a different level of care of commemoration was given to the Indians compared to what was given to the British. And again, that creates a different sort of memory where how do you commemorate, say, your family member if you don't even know where they were buried because they were thrown into a mass grave 100 years ago? And it creates a different pattern of, of, of remembrance. Um, thank you so much for coming on to put India's war into context and to put it into the broader context of the First World War for us. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Tell everybody about the book because it's out in paperback now, isn't it? Yeah, so this is The Indian Empire at War, which is uh, my book, which is after 100 years of people not writing about the Indian army nearly as much as other soldiers. It's the first narrative looking at the Indians on all the different fronts using uh, these Indian veteran interviews for the first time. And I really hope it's a subject which can become seen as more part of the First World War mainstream and more a part of, of British history. Join us tomorrow when Bethany Hughes will be talking all about the Odyssey. If you've been watching her TV programme, she's so nice, it's impossible not to like her. But I am just a little bit jealous that she basically got to go on a jolly round Greek islands just before COVID hit um, and enjoy the sunshine and talk all about something she loves. But you can't not like her because she's just amazing. Uh, so join us and she'll be talking us through the Odyssey um, don't be scared by classical literature. It's not that scary, but she'll give you a breakdown and an introduction to it, and then you can go off and be jealous too and watch her TV show. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.